All right, welcome to the You Are What You Read podcast. This is episode one. This is Max. This is is Luke. Luke. And uh, we decided to create this podcast off of our love for literature and gaining a deeper understanding from each other on what we've just read. And we wanted to bring this to the public to gain interest and interaction with our viewers. Uh, We are going to be choosing books um, essentially underneath like the recovery umbrella, whether it's spiritual, mental, emotional, substance abuse, physical physical recovery, anything that's really seeking like the betterment of oneself. There are lots of books that we've read in the past that have inspired us and impacted us resonated with us that we'll be choosing from and we'll also be choosing from new ones that we haven't gotten to that we're interested in so what we're going to be doing is placing as we're reading along we want to be able to encourage our viewers to read along with us we'll be going chapter by chapter after each chapter we're going to stop we're going to discuss it and that will be the end of the episode As our viewers, we want you to be able to interact with us. So if you're reading along and you have an interpretation about what you've just read and you would like to share that with us, feel free to either leave it in the comments, uh, send us an email, you know, just get in communication with us. You can ask questions, you can give suggestions, your how that made you feel your own personal experiences with it. You know, we want you guys to be able to interact with us as much as possible. And at the end of the episode, when we discuss it, we're really just, it's going to be very free form. We're going to share any experiences. We're going to share any thoughts that we have based on what we've read, um, any sort of supplemental readings, things that the text relates to. And we would like to open that up to you guys. So any thoughts you have, feel free to send them in. Perfect. And we have chosen to start out episode one by reading Alan Watts, Become What You Are. And uh, this is a collection of multiple things written and spoken by Alan Watts, whether it be essays, short stories, uh, radio broadcasts that he did in the 50s. They date these, some of these writings date all the way back to the 30s before he even came into the United States. A uh, vast majority are coming from his time in Burke, around Berkeley in the 50s. And uh, with that, we will get into reading the very first chapter of Become Who You Are The Paradox of Self Denial. The paradox of self-denial. While living, be a dead man, thoroughly dead. Then, whatever you do, just as you will, will be right. A Buddhist poem, written in China several centuries ago, tries to find words for an intuition which is common to almost every culture in the world. When translated into the familiar language of the Christian tradition, it is so well known as to be almost a platitude. He that loseth his soul shall find it. What always preserves this thought from banality is the mere tiresomeness of those precepts which everyone knows he ought to observe but doesn't, is that this is a saying which no one can observe. For so long as there is something which I can do about it, I am not yet dead. 
I have not yet completely lost my life. Yet, this is not the simple absurdity of a command impossible to obey. It is a real communication, a description of something which happens to people, like the rain or the touch of the wind. It is simply the expression of the universal discovery that a man does not really begin to be alive until he has lost himself, until he has released the anxious grasp which he normally holds upon his life, his property, his reputation and position. It is the irreducible truth in the monkish idea of holy poverty, of the way of life to which there are no strings attached, in which because all is lost, there is nothing to lose, in which there is an ex exhilaration of a kind of freedom which is poetically likened to the birds and the winds, or to clouds drifting in the boundless sky. It is the life which St. Paul described as poor but making many rich, as having nothing but possessing all things. What an unrealistic nostalgia we have for it. Marie Antoinette playing shepherdess in the gardens of Versailles, presidents of great corporations retreating to lonely fishing shacks in the High Sierra, the insurance clerk walking alone on the interminable ocean sands, wondering if he would have the courage to be a beachcomber, or the moral idealist reproaching himself because he does not have quite the strength to abandon a comfortable salary and plunge into the slums, like Peter Morin and Dorothy Day or the great exemplars St. Francis and St. Vincent de Paul. But most of us know that we will not and probably cannot do it, that we shall continue to cling to our habitual ways of life with all the helplessness of addicts to a destroying passion. If this begins to sound like a sermon, I do not mean it that way. For I said at the beginning that the words about fun finding one's life through losing it were not really a precept that could simply be practiced and obeyed. This is what makes all the talk about the necessity of selflessness or the task of transcending the ego so fantastically misunderstood. Treated as a precept, it makes for every kind of moral and spiritual phoniness. Always have a large pinch of salt handy when you meet the fellow who talks about trying to renounce himself to overcome his ego. I'm reminded of the apocryphal conversation between Confucius and Lao Tzu when the former had been prating of universal love without the element of self. What stuff, cried Lao Tzu, does not universal love contradict itself? Is not your elimination of self a positive manifestation of self? Sir, if you would cause the world not to lose its source of nourishment, there is the universe, its regularity is unceasing. There are the sun and moon. Their brightness is unceasing. There are the stars, their groupings never change. There are the birds and beasts, they flock together without varying. There are trees and shrubs, they grow upward without exception. Like these accord with the Tao, with the way of things, and be perfect. Why then these vain struggles after charity and duty to one's neighbor as though beating a drum in search of a fugitive? Alas, sir, you have brought much confusion into the mind of man. As I said, the truth about finding life through losing, it is not a precept but a report of something which happens, and happens in many different ways. It is not given to everyone to be an obvious moral hero or a notorious saint. It is not everyone's way to be a rolling stone without the responsibilities of wife and children. Nor, I should add, is it everyone's privilege to be a self-sacrificing wife or model husband. And still more, it is not everyone's gift to be the contented fatalist, accepting himself and his limitations just as they are, knowing that he is a weed and not trying to be a rose. Some of us will always be trying, 
with an exasperating degree of relative success to improve ourselves in one way or another, and no amount of self-acceptance will stop it. Self-renunciation, self-acceptance, these are all names for the same thing, for the ideal to which there is no road, the art for which there is no technique. Why, then, does this whole idea so commonly wear the form of a precept, of advice to be followed, of a method to be applied? For obviously there is a vital contradiction in the very notion of self-renunciation, and just as much as self-acceptance. People try to accept themselves in order to be different, and try to surrender themselves in order to have more self-respect in their own eyes, or to attain some spiritual experience, some exaltation of consciousness, the desire for which is the only, is the very form of their self-interest. We are really stuck with ourselves, and our attempts to reject or to accept are equally fruitless, for they fail to reach that inaccessible center of our selfhood, which is trying to do the accepting or the rejecting. The part of ourself that wants to change ourself is the very one that needs to be changed, but it is as inaccessible as a needle to the prick of its own point. But the reason why the idea of self-renunciation appears in the impossible form of a precept is that it is a form of what Buddhists call upaya, a Sanskrit term meaning skillful means, more particularly the skillful means employed by a teacher to awaken his student to some truth which can only be reached in a roundabout way, where the selfishness of the self thrives on the notion that it can command itself, that it is the lord and master of its own processes, of its own motives and desires. Thus, the one important result of any serious attempt at self-renunciation or self-acceptance is a humiliating discovery that it is impossible. And this precisely is that death to oneself, which is the improbable source of a way of life so new and so alive that it feels like having been born again. In this metaphorical sense, the ego dies on finding out its own incapacity, its inability to make any difference to itself that is really important. That is why in Zen Buddhism, the task of self-transcendence is likened to a mosquito trying to bite an iron bull, and in the words of one of the old masters, the transforming death comes about at the very moment when the iron hide of the bull finally and absolutely rejects the mosquito's frail proboscis. There is, of course, some, still some refuge for our illusion of self-importance and the idea that we must first make a very resolute effort to bite the bull. Every in-group distinguishes itself from the out-group, the initiates from the hoi polloi, by some process of going through the mill of enduring sufferings which are subsequently worn as the proud badge of graduation. Thus, one of the more sickening aspects of spiritual phoniness is the usually rather subtly hinted implication that one has, after all, suffered so much. So too in the person who is still a mere aspirant to the state of grace, the same kind of humbug wears the form of resolutions to bite the bull to the utmost, in order to have oneself finally and effectively convinced that it cannot be done. I have always found that the people who have quite genuinely died to themselves make no claims of any kind to their own part in the process. They think of themselves as lazy and lucky. If they did anything at all, it was so simple that anyone else could do the same, for all that they have done is to recognize a universal fact of life, something as true of the weak and foolish as of the wise and strong. 
They would even say that in this respect there is some advantage in being weak and foolish, for the possession of a strong will and a clever head makes some things very difficult to see. A successful merchant will perhaps be less ready than a mere tramp to see that the same oblivion engulfs both of them. To the genuine dead man come alive, sage, mystic, Buddha, Jivamukta, or what you will, the notion that he attained this state by some effort or by some special capacity of his own is always absurd and impossible. You may almost be sure, then, that some kind of clericalism, some kind of highly refined spiritual racket is at work when stress is laid upon the suffering and the discipline, the endurance and the willpower, which are said to be the essential prerequisites of an entry to the kingdom of heaven. Such talk is sometimes just making the best of a bad job, trying to pretend to oneself that a life of constant self-frustration was in fact a great spiritual attainment. Sometimes it may simply be an honest mistake, for there are people who discover what was always close at hand only after a long and painful journey, and they remain under the impression that the most awkward road was the only road. Sometimes, however, talk of this kind is the really nasty kind of preaching affected by people who presume to be schoolmasters to their fellow man. But their sermons never have the slightest creative effect, since the only motives for action which they supply are shame or fear or guilt. And when we respond to such motives, we find only a balm for the ego's injured pride, a balm only which our egocentricity flourishes with special gusto. With such misunderstandings out of the way, perhaps we can consider more intimately what it means to find life by losing it. The main point is, I think, that the state metaphorically called death or self-surrender is not a future condition to be acquired. It is rather a present fact. In small matters, our ego shows some signs of life, but fundamentally, in the presence of great space and time, as of great love and great fear, we are leaves on the winds. When we begin to think about this clearly, we evoke every disturbing emotion which we would like to be able to control. Our resistance to these emotions is as natural as the emotions themselves. Indeed, they are really the same as the emotions, since emotions appear only as manifestations of a state of tension and resistance. If I did not dislike fear, it would not be fear. Nevertheless, there is, I think, no difficulty in discovering that our resentment of those emotions, our unwillingness to experience them, is totally ineffectual. It is the mosquito biting the iron bowl again. The fragility and frailty of our human bodies within the merciless and marvelous torrent of life evokes every emotion of this agonizingly sensitive organism. Love, anger, sadness, terror, and the fear of terror. And our attempts to stand above these emotions and control them are the emotions themselves at play. Since love is also to be in love with love, and sadness to be sorry that one is sad. Our unwillingness to feel is the very measure of our ability to feel, for the, mere se the more sensitive the instrument, the greater its capacity for pain, and so for reluctance to be hurt. Now there are some psychologists who have struck, rather clumsily perhaps, upon an important truth, namely that there is a serious mistake in not responding to our feelings, or in trying to feel in some other way than we feel actually. They are speaking here, it should be noted, of inward feelings and not of overt action. In other words, if you as a mother hate your child, don't try to pretend to yourself that you love him. But, put in this rather oversimplified way, this insight degenerates into another precept. 
Accept your feelings. Go along with your emotions. It's not that simple, because our feelings conflict with one another, as, for example, when we are too proud to cry, or too frightened to fall in love. In this case, which feeling do we accept? The sorrow or the pride? The fear or the love? Now, this is a most instructive example of the difficulty of self-acceptance, for in such a situation we find that we can accept neither. The conflict will not allow itself to be resolved by a decision for one of the two sides, and we are stuck, hopelessly, with the conflict. But the real importance of what these psychologists are trying to say is that there is an almost uncanny wisdom in the spontaneous and natural reactions of our organism to the course of events. The extraordinary capacity to feel an event inwardly as distinct from bursting into precipitate action to avoid the tension of feeling. This capacity is in fact a wonderful power of adaptation to life, not unlike the instant responses of flowing water to the contours of the ground over which it flows. I hope this is clear. I am not talking at the moment of responses in terms of action, but only of our inward, subjective responses of feeling. The point is that our feelings are not really a kind of resistance, a kind of fight with the course of events. They are harmonious and intelligent response. A person who did not feel frightened at the threat of danger would be like a tall building with no give to the wind. A mind which will not melt with sorrow or love is a mind which will all too easily break. Now the reason why I am talking of feeling rather than outward action is that I am considering the predicament of man in the face of events about which nothing can be done, events towards which our sole response is a response of feeling. I am thinking of the ultimate certainty of death the overall help helplessness of a man within the vast tide of life, and finally, of the very special feelings which arise when we are faced with a conflict of feelings which cannot be resolved. All these situations evoke feelings which, in the long run, are as irresistible as the situations themselves are insoluble. They are the ultimate feelings, and much of what is called philosophy is the fruitless attempt to talk oneself out of them. Thus, what I have called the death of the ego transpires in the moment when it is discovered and admitted that these ultimate feelings are irresistible. They are ultimate in two senses. One, that they sometimes have to do with very fundamental and cataclysmic events, and two, that they are sometimes our deepest, most radical feelings with respect to a given situation, such as the basic frustration provoked by a conflict between sorrow and shame. The point is that these ultimate feelings are as wise as all the rest, and their wisdom emerges when we give up resisting them, through the realization that we are simply unable to do so. When, for example, life compels us at last to give in, to surrender to the full play of what is ordinarily called the terror of the unknown, the suppressed feeling suddenly shoots up as a fountain of the purest joy. What was formerly felt as the horror of our in inevitable mortality because transformed by an inner alchemy into an almost ecstatic sense of freedom from the bonds of individuality. But ordinarily, we do not discover the wisdom of our feelings because we do not let them complete their work. We try to suppress them or discharge them in premature action, not realizing that they are a process of creation which, like birth, begins as a pain and turns into a child. I hope it is possible to say all this without tying it up with the atmosphere of oughtness. 
without giving anyone the notion that this kind of self-surrender is something which one should or can do. This willful, compulsive, moralistic approach to man's transformation always obstructs it, for it still implies that very illusion of self-mastery which stands in the way. But it is just when I discover that I cannot surrender myself that I am surrendered, just when I find that I cannot accept myself that I am accepted, for in reaching this hard rock of the impossible, one reaches serenity, where there can no longer be the masked hide-and-seek of I and me, good I trying to change bad me, who is really the same fellow as good I. In the expressive imagery of Zen, all this striving for self-surrender is like trying to put legs on a snake, or shall I say, like a naked man trying to lose his shirt. To quote from that general, genial Taoist Chang Zhu, from the standpoint of the sage, the joined is not united, nor the separated apart, nor the long in excess, nor the short wanting. For just as a duck's legs, though short, cannot be lengthened without pain to the duck, and a crane's legs, though long, cannot be shortened without misery to the crane, so that which is long in man's moral nature cannot be cut off, nor that which is short be lengthened. All right. Thank you for reading all that, Luke. So we have now gotten through the first chapter of Become What You Are. And uh, a whole lot of death of ego there. Yeah. You know, that uh, whole idea of shattering the ego to become one is the goal of almost every single spiritual, spiritual philosophy. It, like, no matter where, what, or who you talk to, that's everyone's goal, is to eliminate the idea of self. And I really like how this opens up with, while living, be a dead man, thoroughly dead. Then whatever you do, just as you will, will be right. And it's obviously not talking that it's not talking about physically dying, right? Where this body no longer exists. It's the idea of this body existing needs to die. The and second accepting I, that, accepting and that, not and fighting it, not fighting it, and just seeing that this whole placing the I statement eliminates yourself from anything else the second i make mm. it about i i'm giving my ego that forefront it's no longer we or all it's i that i statement is what needs to die right you know and that's just it's so deep on how to start out a book granted that's alan watts's thing yeah that's, he's all about just fucking he's a head, head diving for, yeah. in, yeah. You know, which is which is rad. To me, it's a very encouraging kind of way to start with the poem, um, because a, it sort of reassures me that it's possible, mm -hmm. right, to go about this way of life, and in my experience, like there's. You don't, like he said, you don't reach it. It's not a future goal. It's a present fact. And like, yeah. you just 
in certain moments, you're tapped into it and you're going with the flow of life. And then in other moments, you are very disgracefully not going with the flow of life. And that's how it goes. And the second part was, um, whatever you do, just as you will, will be right. And that's a very reassuring because, you know, society, an individual's ego, um, does a very effective job at making them question themselves and have this anxious feeling of like, oh, something's wrong with me, something's wrong with what I'm doing, with what I'm creating. And this is a much more reasonable solution to the idea that the way to eliminate that feeling of being wrong is to conform. Mm -hmm. That's segue we're both in recovery we are both that's how we know each other that's how we know each other and that is my third step that little thing that you were just talking about yeah okay is for me whatever you do just as you will will be all right yeah right and not trying to grasp it not trying to understand it it's just i gotta have to i have to let go of it and he talks about it further and deeper into that chapter this surrendering to gain sincerity surrendering to gain understanding and only when he thought he could never surrender is when he truly surrendered and that is my story yeah when I thought there was nothing I could do to save my life, that's when I saved my life. Mm. When I thought there was no point in going forward, that's when I found the point to go forward. That's why in recovery they say the rock bottom. You have to hit your end all be all to understand that that's not the truth. Yeah. There's a whole other side of the spectrum. Desperation. And exactly. Yeah. It's turning from desperation to passion to hope exactly you know what i mean and that's why there's just so many you know applicable points throughout this that fall directly into that path of recovery that we've both been on yeah i was looking for it i didn't find the exact words but um in one point in the chapter talked about feeling like one's begun a entirely new life one has been you know rejuvenated to such an extent and that's what my experience has been absolutely and you know talking about not trying to understand or grasp this process is so recently i just got back from a a pretty long backpacking trip in europe you sure did and it was really monumental and i was talking with a friend yesterday about how they notice this kind of subtle change in the way I carry myself, the way I act, all that. And I notice it too, but it's not anything I could define. It's not anything I could explain. And it's not anything I was going for. I wasn't aiming to enhance my spirit. I was just aiming to see some cool shit in Europe experience the world right and that's you know the fact that there wasn't any 
like grasping for this, grasping for that is what allowed that process to happen exactly as it was supposed to without mm. my ego, my I yeah. trying to take control. Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole... To eliminate oneself from oneself's life is just such a... It's insane to say that, thinking it from society standards, yeah. thinking it from what we've been taught and what we see in movies and what we see on TV and reading some, you know, science fiction and things like that. It's always about one person or one sect of people surviving and reaching the end while trumping out everyone and everything else. Yeah. That's the development of ego. It's watching our parents, our teachers, create the I statement of correcting us, telling us when we're wrong and when we're right per their standard, per society standard, per religion standards. There's all these different sects that when interchanged and, and brought together, the goal is to eliminate self, but we're taught to create self within each individual task or each individual category as we're developing. Yeah, and to project our identity onto Correct. all this stuff. Yeah. And it goes from the clothes that we wear to the music that we listen to to the books that we read, right. you know, the, the the practices that we do on a daily basis is something that is like all a reflection, supposed to be a reflection of who we are as an individual. Mm. Where the book wasn't written specifically for me, the clothes weren't made specifically for me. The, the song wasn't made specifically for me. Right. None of these creators had Max in mind <laughs> upon creating these products. Yeah. These products, they wanted to disperse to as many people as possible. Yeah. And there's some unseeable part of an individual that gravitates towards these books and these clothes and that music and not those and there's no understanding or controlling like if i don't like a song i'm not gonna listen to the song right it's just not gonna happen and if this guy over here loves the song good for him yeah and there's no but then it's it, there's there. no judgment that needs to be placed but then like for what i do is when i don't understand a song or i don't understand a book or i don't understand a movie mm -hmm. i remove for a song, for example, if I don't like the melody that goes along with it, it's too loud for me or whatever. It just doesn't sit with me. Nine times out of ten, it's not the words. It's not the lyrics to the song. So I'll just look up the lyrics to see if mm. I can gain an understanding yeah. of why these people love this song. Right. I eliminate the things that I don't like about it. Maybe I just don't like the artist's voice. Right. But I'm not going to discredit that it's not a great song. It's a bad song. Instead of just hearing it one time, yeah. it's... How dare you like it? You it's know, a bad it's song. A, exactly. 
Um, and another thing that I've done, uh, and this is specifically with music, has been I listen to an album and first time through, I don't like it, I don't get it, it for for it actively like upsets me. And then I'll come back later, I'll put some time in between it, I'll go a couple weeks not listening to it, and I'll come back with a new perspective. And this has happened a number of times. And especially if there's that feeling of actively like being upset and not liking it and dispassion, it's like later I come back and I'm like, wow. And some of some of my favorite albums throughout my life have been that experience. The first time was like, what is going yeah, on what here? What is happening? Right. So you said a phrase a little while back. Yeah. Basically, removing myself from my life, Correct. that elimination of the ego. And it sounds impossible. And if you've studied, you know, the meaning of words and logic, it's like, that's impossible. So I'm just not even going to think about it. But more than anything, I think it's a flaw in the language and the understanding. And it's like, well, sounds like it is possible. It, it absolutely is possible. Right. And, and it's achieved through what I have found for myself. It's achieved from having an understanding of a power greater than myself. Whatever that is, right. it, that doesn't matter. This isn't like a religious plug to get no, you to no, no, see no, no, that not. this is how you have to live your life to obtain the things that I've attained. But it's it's something that you know in your heart exists. Mm -hmm. Not my heart, right. not your heart, right. but your heart that it exists. Some form of creator, mother, whatever, whatever it is that you call it, that's whatever but what it comes down to is knowing that for myself it's came down to knowing that i am not in control right and that's a very like small but profound and important elimination of self Correct. because the self is absolutely convinced that it is totally in control that it is supremely just and justified and righteous and taking that step back and saying like no. This it's is how this is how way. I look at it. And I was explaining this to a friend recently. My physical body is an NPC. It's programmed. It's it's just doing what it's supposed <laughs> to be doing. Right. It's existing. Yeah. But my soul, my essence, is the main character. That is something that is connected to an etheric realm, something that's outside of the physical body. And for me, the proof is I'm sitting here talking to you, but there's people on the other side of the world that know that my essence exists. Yeah. I don't need to physically be there. They can have these memories. Mm -hmm. There's people that I've seen one time in my life they know that my essence exists. They may not remember the physical structure. They may not remember how I looked or what I was wearing or whatever. But to know, and then my example from my friend was, I'm my physical body is the random guy 
in Grand Theft Auto on the corner that you know is there at some point throughout the game. I may be on the other side of the map, but I know that dude's walking back and forth doing absolutely nothing. But I can go there, and he's there. Yeah. The idea of him still exists. Yeah. Now, when my physical body has departed, the idea of Max will still exist within the people that I've made connections with. Mm -hmm. The hearts you've touched. The hearts I've touched yeah. and also the ones that I haven't, but that I walked by on the beach one time, never saw that individual mm -hmm. again. They can be looking back in 40, 50 years. Do you remember that extremely tall guy walking down the beach with a large beard and a bird and a giant dog? That dude was wild. That's great, yeah. That's the essence. Right. Right. Now, to go back, to have a little callback for you, where you were talking about, I don't even remember what, we're what, you, were, what you were mentioning, but the feelings of like, attributing emotion and attributing just basically like growth but I really this I've had to read a couple of times to get an understanding of it indeed they are really the same as emotions since emotions appear only as manifestations of a state of tension and resistance if I do not dislike fear it would not be fear right Nevertheless, there is, right? So by me saying I don't like to fear things is proving to me that fear exists within me. If I were to say I don't have any fear towards anything, that proves that fear exists within me. I, and a lot of people in, in, the, in the rooms that we see on a regular basis is I don't know how to love. That's showing mm. me that love exists within. Mm. You don't know that you don't like it if you've never experienced it. Yeah. You have to know, you have to have had it. With that to... one, it's like they're missing something. They're missing that ability. Correct. Right. It's like you have to have some, you have to have had it to have any understanding to say that you don't like it or that it doesn't affect you. Mm hmm. Right. And then it's just like what you were talking about in, in just kind of the way that it's phrased that word love or that word fear might be what the block is. But if you were mm. to put it as being scared or giving an example of what fear has elicited in you and they're like, oh yeah, I've, I've experienced that before. Right. I've had those feelings. It's just underneath the larger category of fear. It's underneath the larger category of love on the opposite end of the spectrum. And, and I run into a lot of people that it, we hear it all the time. We'll love you until you can love yourself. That's implying that you've never loved yourself. That's implying that you've never had love. Right, or you don't have that ability. You don't yeah. have that ability, which isn't the truth of the matter. Right. It's a, it's a very comforting thing to hear for somebody coming into a new way of life. Right. It's a very comforting thing to hear when, when you don't have that feeling currently about oneself. Mm -hmm. But the second that you allow your ego to die, you allow the idea of death to take over. All of these things are there. Those raw things that create mankind and allow us to develop language, develop homes, develop clothing, to evolve into the way that we've evolved over the span of mankind's history 
all stem from fear and love. So those are the two like base emotions mm-hmm. that exist no matter what, no matter how how big and strong you are, fear exists. Right. Doesn't matter how what type of a life that you lived in, you're in a prison system, you're you're at the Ritz Carlton. Fear exists. Yep. Love exists. And death exists. And death exists. And no amount of money or property or influence is going to change that and it's really i mean i don't know a whole lot about science but it seems kind of weird to me that some of these people in the past like old disney for example who like freeze their brain or whatever after they die it's like okay like you're scared you you're a very scared man you're a very scared man that's driven on ego Mm mm-hmm because something within you thinks that your physical matter, your makeup, is going to change something in the future. Right. And that if they ever gain that ability, which more than likely they will, some some form of some way, but the consciousness is what it does it is not going to be there. Right. Right? And it and it goes for like when I've heard people doing this and like cryogenically freezing their entire body <laughs> upon death, there's and this is science. There's, I think it's 11 grams of mass magically disappear. Or what, I forget the exact grammage. Hmm. When, when, the, when somebody dies, they depart this earth. This body no longer is able to function. There's a, a specific amount of weight that leaves the body. Unexplained. That. That's interesting. And it's not in like the evacuation of your bowels. Like right. that's all accounted okay. for. There's still a portion that is no longer there. It's a very minute portion, mm-hmm. but we're also thinking of something that, in my belief system of reincarnation, that would then be the essence passed along to the right. next life. Right. The same thing happens in any living form, any living body, plants animals microorganisms i didn't know that that's crazy the smallest amount yeah. just disappears now is that the consciousness so in cryogenically freezing yourself what's left what's really going to go on there yeah i mean granted this is all my interpretation and this is all i don't know this because to be a hundred percent fact because i haven't sat there and weighed a dead body Mm, but the studies that dead. I've read from people who do about that, <laughs> you, you know, I'd be concerned about myself. <laughs> but that would probably mean that I'm some type of scientist right, and that's right. my job and that's what I'm doing, what I'm doing, or what, what have right, you. Right. But I do have it on good authority that I trust the studies that I have read Okay. in this. Because this has been going on for a very long time, the proof of consciousness leaving the body so we're coming up on 45 minutes just about all right and i think that's that's pretty pretty good good. i wanted to say one last thing there's a few um similes in the chapter and i thought they were done really well there's obviously the one he brings up a couple times about the iron bowl and and the the mosquito. mosquito yes and that's like the moment of surrender is when all the tension leaves the bowl essentially right and the other one was how 
the the contours the the water flows with the contours of the river and i thought those were really well done i've tried to make a few similes myself at points in my life of course and uh just um and what i've read and listened to of alan watts he does a really good job of like executing those and helping like the understanding be a reflection of like as within so without correct you know so just wanted to add that yeah absolutely the last thing i want to add in is as it says at the end of that chapter the death of an ego is going to be a very painful thing it's going to be something that you suffer through mm-hmm the shedding of oneself is a very difficult thing to accomplish because we have so much stake involved mm. in the development of ourselves. Yeah. But as he's talking about at the end of the chapter of like, you can't shorten the legs of a crane mm-hmm. without it causing the crane extreme pain. It doesn't mean that you cannot physically do that. It's just going to cause some discomfort. So the idea that we can't change who we are, we're so stuck in our ways as a society or as an individual or as a group of people, it doesn't mean that it's absolutely impossible. It's that we're not willing to suffer the consequences of doing said action. Right. Now, I've endured a lot of pain to create the individual that sits here today. Mm -hmm. I've gone through a lot to create that person and every single day I shed a little bit more of the ego and some days it's very easy, and some days it's very difficult. Yeah. But it is possible. It is something that can be done, and there's very exact ways and different techniques and different walks of life that allow you to obtain that stuff. And right. I find it in multiple ways. I use a little bit of everything out there, but it's never an easy journey for myself. So I don't ever want anybody to be discouraged that they mm. cannot do something. It is possible. It's possible. And that's where that's the biggest thing that I get out of that chapter is the death of an ego is absolutely possible. Right. It just doesn't quite look like what you think it does. No. It's not you know. It's not the Hollywood version. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a lifetime goal. Right. And I've had at, at points in time, I've wondered like, okay, how can I kind of practice this spiritual life, practice these principles, whatever it is, and still like exist in society. And the reality is, is that that's just my ego not quite understanding what a spiritual life and what principles mean. Mm-hmm. And through practice and understanding, it's like there's, there's a way. Absolutely. All right. I think that was a a great episode. Uh, Next week, we'll be reading the chapter titled Become What You Are. Tune in next week. Thank you for anyone listening. Have a good one.